God, we just come before you now with open hearts, with open minds. And God, we just publicly repent of the violence that surround us, God, the, the violence that we do to ourselves, that we do to our neighbors, that we do to our world. And God, we just humbly ask for guidance and for a path forward, a path towards peace, a path towards reconciliation, a path towards love. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, I'm wearing a suit. That's <laughs> uh, the only one I own. <laughs> I got married in it, so don't get used to it, because uh, now I have to dry clean it, and that'll probably take me a while. But <laughs> uh, it's good to be with you guys. Um, so, as I was researching this topic of violence, I decided I would spend five minutes on a Monday researching the, for this sermon. Just five minutes, all I needed. And because <laughs> I know so much. Um, so, I spent five minutes researching headlines. I went to two websites. And over the course of five minutes, this is what I read. Egypt bombs Libya after Islamic State beheads 21 hostages. The U.S. escalates night raids in Afghanistan since end to combat mission. 22-year-old Omar Al-Hussein killed a Danish filmmaker and three officers at a free speech event. Three Muslims were killed in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. An Indian immigrant was partially paralyzed because of a police assault by an Alabama officer. And hundreds protest fatal police shooting of Mexican migrant worker in Washington state. And then more locally, this is what I read, again, all within five minutes, there was a car found with a man inside who sustained numerous gunshot wounds at 47th and Ozark. Police killed a man after a high-speed chase ended in a church parking lot in the Argentine neighborhood. A man was shot and killed while warming up his car in Overland Park, Kansas. A 14-year-old boy is robbed at 74th and Euclid while walking to a bus stop. And to top it all off, if you live in Midtown, know that there is an armed robbery spree happening as we speak. So uh, that's a lot. That's a lot to take in. That was five minutes. I wasn't even reading the stories. I just literally jotted down headlines as I went down these two news websites. And this is unfortunately only a sampling of the violent acts that get reported on in the news on a daily basis. Because you see now, in this day and age, we are surrounded by 24-hour news, radio, internet, iPhones, RSS feeds, and email forwards. And so basically what this means is we are being continually pummeled with news of violent act after violent act after violent act. So then I started asking questions like, what does this do to us? Does it do anything to us taking this in day in, day out, year after year, this kind of information? What is, how does this affect us over the long haul? Does it affect where we go or don't go? Does it affect who we talk to or don't talk to? Does it affect how we perceive people of a different ethnicity, mode of dress, or color? Does it affect how we let our children explore the world outside the home? Does it affect the way we choose to protect ourselves from those perceived threats all around us? Does it affect our ability to trust others we don't yet know? So these are some of the questions that, that I was wanting to like kind of wrap my head around. Like, what, what is all this doing to us? 
What, what, what effect does this all have on us? And as I search for answers to these questions, Paul Rock, in the robe, turned me on to this great podcast called Invisibilia. Have any of you guys heard of this podcast, Invisibilia? It's a fantastic podcast. I'd highly recommend downloading it on iTunes. But in one particular episode, the hosts of this podcast interviewed an environmental psychologist named Roger Hart. So this guy, in the early 70s, he wanted to study children and uh, their behavior in their own natural habitat. And uh, much in the same way that Jane Goodall studied baboons, yeah? <laughs> so, and uh, I know that all of us deep down are wanting to know, like, what do children do when they are all alone, right? And I can tell you that this podcast uh, gave me that answer, and this is what it was. Children, when they are, un they are all alone and they are unobserved, they will make fart noises and they will giggle. And then they will make more fart noises and they will giggle and they will repeat this process for about 30 minutes. <laughs> so that's what I learned from this podcast. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> but, but, uh, but what was great is not only did he gather like funny, like anecdote audio clips like this, but he all, and he also conducted a lot of interviews. But what he wanted to do was he picked a small town in Vermont and he wanted to observe what happened. He, want, he wanted to ask the parents, he did ask the parents, where, hey, where do you let your children go? And then he wanted to see where the children actually went. And what he found was striking. You see, he took this information and he made maps. He made a series of maps of this small town in, in Vermont. And what he found was children the age of four or five were going out into the neighborhood completely unsupervised. And that most of the kids in his study, by the age 10, were allowed to roam freely around the entire town, including swimming in a nearby lake, again, completely unsupervised. So this was in the early 70s. And what he found was that these parents, they weren't particularly motivated by fear. They, they weren't worried that their child was going to get abducted. Uh, the term stranger danger hadn't even become popularized yet. And that's just what it was. So then, fast forward to today. Roger Hart decided to go back to that same town and conduct the same study once more. And what do you think he found? Anybody? Different. Yeah, kids, yeah, stay in the backyard. Kids, stay in the backyard. That's totally right. He found that... Over, the, over this time span, children had significantly less area to roam around in. Uh, Roger went back and he, he did an interview uh, with, with someone a few years ago, and the parent said this. He's like, I just want to know where my kid is at all times because I would hate to turn my back around and have some crazy person snatch them away. Which is a perfectly normal reaction, right? Like, none of us want anything bad to happen to our children, but what was fascinating is he then went back and, and looked at the data from the 70s study to today, and he looked at the crime rate and the demographics. And what he found was that from the early 70s to today, in this town in Vermont, the crime rate had not changed, not at all, nor had the demographics. So from 70s to today, there was physically no evidence of any more crime. The, the demographics were exactly the same but yet the leash had been pulled so much tighter. And what do you think Roger attributed that radical shift to? I'll tell you. Egypt bombs Libya after Islamic State beheads 21 hostages. Three Muslims killed in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. 14-year-old boy robbed at 74th and Euclid while walking to a bus stop. And there's an armed robbery spree happening as we speak in the Midtown. 
That's what he attributed to. That's why the leash was tightened. So you see, I think in our society, we have what I would call a fear problem. And what I just read to you directly contributes to this. And here's why. There's something that brain researchers call a fear threshold. So let's just give a quick example of this. Say uh, it's late at night, you're getting ready to go to bed, and you hear a creak. And uh, most people, when they hear that creak, would recognize, oh, it's fine, the house is settling. This is what houses do, and you have no problem going to sleep. Yes? You're able to totally just disregard it. But add in a healthy dose of these news stories that I just told you, or let's just say you decide to watch a horror movie (laughs) before going to bed, and all of a sudden that creak grows from being just a creak into an explosion of worst-case scenarios that are based on what? The news headlines we read and the movies we just watched. These images crossed our fear threshold, resulting in changed behavior. And these images, they have a profound impact on us, and they also serve to keep us divided. They keep us divided politically, economically, and ethnically. And the sad thing is that most of the time, our fears are completely unnecessary. 99% of the time, that creak that you hear in your house at night is just that, a creak. But these fear-inducing images are so powerful, they're so strong, that we simply can't ignore them. Our brains cannot ignore them. And so what do we do? We end up orienting our lives around fear, which is the antithesis of love. And that's what this whole series is about. This Lent, we're exploring uh, various causes of violence and conflict, uh, which is fitting, right? Because we're at the season of Lent, we're looking at Jesus in his last days. And what does that include? But a violent act. He was executed on a cross by the state. That is violence. But what's perplexing and compelling about the story of Jesus is that throughout this entire process, we see Jesus refuse a violent overthrow of the occupiers. We see Jesus tell his disciples to put down their two swords shortly after he told them to pick them up when they were facing like a battalion of centurions. Two swords against battalions, you're not going to do well there. You also see Jesus healing a centurion's ear after Peter cuts it off. And you see Jesus on the cross pleading for the people who consented to his execution, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And these are equally powerful images, yeah? But they're images not of fear. They are images of love. They are images of love overcoming fear. These are stories of Jesus choosing love over fear. So let's look at our passage today. It comes from 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 26. Feel free to follow along your Bibles or you can just take it in and listen. I'll I'll read it for you here. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? 
But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as God chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. This is the word of the Lord. So in this passage... Paul's addressing the church at Corinth, who's in the middle of conflict, just like every other church that Paul wrote to. But what is Paul writing about, right? What is, what is Paul pleading for the church to do? He's calling for the church to remain unified, isn't he? He's calling for the church to stick together. He's calling for the church to be willing to have differences, but to not be willing to break communion with one another. To put it a different way, he's calling for the church to be together, but different. And I'm pleased to report that over the course of 2,000 years, those words that Paul so eloquently spoke have stuck. uh, Oh, yeah, except for that schism there. We split up there. And then, oh, yeah, the second schism. Then we had, oh, yeah, this thing called the Protestant Reformation. I guess we split up there, didn't we? And then, oh, yeah, within Protestantism, wow, we've really figured out how to break things up, haven't we? And then within those denominations, they're filled with lots of churches who have experienced church splits, and our own church over the past 150 years has experienced its fair share of problems. Well, we came close. Yeah, (laughs) came oh so close. At least we all still proclaim Jesus as Lord. So that's a starting point, yeah? See, the thing that I think we've lost is our ability to live side by side with those who are different from us which is a struggle that existed even within the ranks of the disciples. Because in the Gospels, you see time and time again, the disciples choosing who is supposed to be in and who is supposed to be out of the Christian community. And then time and time again, they get it wrong. Jesus corrects them. And not only does Jesus correct them, he surprises them. Much like Jesus would surprise us today, I think. Because Jesus welcomed women who were being prostituted. Jesus welcomed men who were zealots, people who were for the violent overthrow of the occupiers, Rome. Jesus also welcomed tax collectors who were the very people who benefited from the occupation. Jesus also welcomed people who were experiencing mental illness, physical disabilities, and Jesus welcomed whole people group, whole people groups who were hated by the Jews. And if you look at the explosion of growth that existed in the early church, people flocked to join this colony because it was a diverse community, a reconciled community that shared all things in common. See, these people saw humanity in the kingdom of God. They saw the way that the world should be, and they couldn't help but run up, sign on the dotted line to join in this humongous family that is beautiful and broken. And even more amazing is that they did this while those who were in power were actively trying to systematically eliminate the fledgling Christian community. These early church followers chose love over fear. 
they could be killed by joining into this family, but they thought it was so good. They were so compelled by that vision that they couldn't help but choose love over fear. That's amazing. So there's a theologian that I love. His name is Stanley Hauerwas. And uh, there's a great essay that he wrote a number of years back. It says this, a modest proposal for peace. Let the Christians of the world agree that they will not kill each other. (laughs) You can laugh. It's a funny title. It's very specific, isn't it? (laughs) He just gets right to the point. It's like, well, I don't think I need to read the summary of this. I I think I get the point. But what's funny is that, like, in it, it, he brings up a lot of really good points and a lot of things that I hadn't thought of before. Hauerwas points out how hypocritical it is for us as Christians to go to war where we will be shooting other people who are potentially Christians as well. That's fascinating. I never thought about that. And the reason this concerns him is because he doesn't see how the church can speak peace and encourage the world to follow a path of love peace, and reconciliation when we can't stop killing ourselves. Because how can we be that city on a hill when we have chosen to place something like nationalism over our allegiance to God? How can we be devoted to both the kingdom of God, which knows no geographic boundaries, that contains people from every culture, tribe, tongue, nation, and also at the same time be wholly devoted to a nation that will potentially have, a, have us pointing the barrels of our gun at other Christians in a different country. It's provocative stuff, yes? <laughs> but I think Hauerwas is just pointing out the importance of us being unified. And to be clear, Hauerwas would like for all violence to cease, not just this to happen, yeah? <laughs> but we have to start somewhere. Consider this his strategic plan. This is step one. <laughs> But he believes that we need to start somewhere, which I would agree. And Hauerwas also points out that the cycle of violence will never end unless we come together, unless we move closer, unless we become vulnerable, learn to recognize the image of God in the other, and expand our understanding of who is our sister and brother. So um, a while ago, I watched this, doc, uh, this no, it wasn't a documentary, it was a movie called Joy Noel. Have you guys seen this? It was a French movie, and it's about the Christmas truce of 1914. Incredible, incredible film. And actually, before I talk about it, um, I just want to say that, holy cow, I cannot even begin to imagine how hellish uh, trench warfare would have been. That is awful. To be walking down miles and miles of this, like, muddy, bloody, stretch of holes (laughs) that have been dug out, these trenches that go on for miles, not knowing that if you stick your head up a little bit too high, when the next bullet's going to hit you, or when the next grenade's going to get thrown, or the bomb's going to get dropped. Like, that, that is just so hellish. I could not even begin to imagine having to go through that. But in World War I, months after the war's beginning, something strange happened. These people who were enemies, who were actively trying to kill each other on Christmas Eve, decided to start throwing up white flags all along the Western Front and many parts of it. And uh, I can't even begin to imagine being the first guy to throw up the white flag and to venture out into no man's land. It's like, hey, don't shoot me. It's Christmas, please. Can we be Christmas people? Can we, can we get along for Christmas? I would like to live through Christmas. But yet it worked. These people who raised their white flag and stepped out into no man's land were met. All these people, these enemies, joined together in the middle and they shared meals. They shared gifts. They shared family photos, and in some cases, they played uh, a rigorous game of soccer. 
And what happened was after this day ended, people returned back to their trenches and something strange happened then. In some parts of the Western Front, after they returned and they became enemies once more, they didn't fire their weapons again. And I think this is because, precisely because, they ventured out into no man's land and suddenly this enemy, these animals, became fathers, brothers, bakers, athletes, doctors. They became human. And so because they came together, they moved closer, they were unable to commit an act of violence against them. And the military commanders, this was also fascinating to me, the only way that the military could get them to fire their weapons again was to completely disband the battalion, split it up, ship them off to a bunch of different areas and bring in a fresh batch of troops that don't know who is on the other side of the trenches. And I think this is what we need again today. I think we need another Christmas truce, yeah? I think we need more opportunities for reconciliation. Because in a city with a racial dividing line, in a country where for most of its history, it has viewed minorities as property rather than people, in a world where whole countries are labeled as terrorists or enemy combatants, we need to push ourselves beyond the fear that keeps us in our corners and seek to love those who are considered unclean, those who have been dehumanized or villainized by our media. We need to close the gap between us and them. We need to be surprised once again by our God who consistently makes enemies friends and who consistently expands our understanding of who is considered to be a part of this ever-expanding kingdom of God. So four years ago, I had a Christmas truce moment that I'd just love to share with you. Um, so once I got a car, uh, every adult that I encountered told me the same thing. Whatever you do, once you leave that budding metropolis known as Blue Springs, Missouri, uh, make sure that you don't exit on 18th Street, 22nd Street. Prospect, Troost, Truman Road. Avoid them altogether, like the plague. <laughs> don't go there. And so naturally, about six or seven years ago now, I moved into Cherith Brook Catholic Worker House, conveniently located off Prospect Exit at 12th and Benton. <laughs> so I did a good job of avoiding those exits, and then I just moved in to the neighborhood. Ah, <laughs> I go to the extremes, I realize. <laughs> so uh, I didn't know what to expect when I joined this community, uh, but I did know that I wanted to be a part of this crazy community that agreed to share all things in common and wanted to offer showers to folks who were sleeping on the streets. I just knew I wanted to be a part of it, didn't know what I was getting, to, getting into, but I went there. And one of the commitments that we, we made as a community was to not drive. So we, we would bike everywhere. We would bike to the grocery store uh, with baby trailers attached, but without babies, food would be back there. So this is what we would do. And I noticed that as I got out there into the neighborhood that I just moved into, whenever I was biking to that grocery store, uh, let's just say a, a group of young black men were approaching me and I noticed something happen. My heart started to beat a little bit faster and a little bit faster the closer and closer I got, which floored me. I had no idea why this happened. And then as I thought about it later, I was like, holy cow, I am a person who would never in a million years consider myself racist. But then in that moment, I realized I had some work to do. Because what I had done, because of all those years of watching the nightly news, where in the very neighborhood I'm now living, I see violent act after violent act after violent act, perpetrated by people who, for the most part, are people of color. 
I decided to put everybody in a category and say, every young black man is scary and I should fear them. And they are, they are violent. But thankfully, uh, I, I did a lot of hard work. And uh, eventually, the historic Northeast became the safest neighborhood I've ever lived in uh, before or since. And why was that? It's because I got to know the people who were on the street. Because at Cherith Brook, we welcomed many folks who were walking around in for breakfast, in for coffee, in for a shower, in for a change of clothes. Sometimes we asked them to live with us. And then other times we would go out into the streets and we would meet people. And so because of that, those people, those groups of people that used to freak me out, I could now go, hey, Ivan, how you doing, man? Did you know that they say that poor loco is really bad for you? I would lay off that man. <laughs> you know, it's like, I now know these people and uh, they know me. And so because of that, the division just washed away and we were part of the same family. So I want to return now to our passage about this whole one body, many parts metaphor. And in the passage, it talks about how we need all the parts of the body in order for us to function well. It makes sense, right? If you hurt your foot, it's not just going to hurt in your foot. Like you're going to feel it all over. Otherwise, you can't just be like, boom, foot. I'm not going to feel you in my brain, in my arms. It's just going to, you're going to be there. I'm not, I'm not going to be aware of it. It doesn't work that way. It affects your whole body. Same thing. You get a migraine, holy cow, you're debilitated, aren't you? If you have a leg that, that uh, you lose it somewhere, you misplaced it. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. So you lose a leg. <laughs> you lose a leg, you have to relearn how to walk. Yeah? So, and I think this body metaphor is so stinking powerful because we, as human beings, cannot function unless all of these limbs of ours work together in unison, which is why I'm a dancer. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not actually a dancer, but I like to shake what my mama gave me. <laughs> so uh, I figured what I'd do is I, I would love to share an illustration with you that talks about why this body metaphor is so important and what will happen to us when we allow fear and hate to rule us as a body of believers, okay? So um, this is a, a people group who uh, have been marginalized and people have a lot of strong feelings about, yes? I think we can all agree about that. I'm just going to share a story, okay? Just a hypothetical story. Let's just say I'm shopping on the plaza, come across a panhandler. And uh, they asked me if I can spare some change so he can get a cheeseburger. Okay, and so what I do is I say, you know what, shoot, man, I'm sorry. I don't have any money. Uh, good luck to you. And then I'm on my way. And uh, then I feel a little guilty because I had a lot of money on me, but I just felt guilty about saying no. So I had to come up with some sort of excuse, right? And so I walk along and as I start to step away from this person, I hear some hateful comments being directed at me because I chose not to give. So as I walk on more and more, my resentment builds. I start to hate this man, and then I walk into Barnes & Noble, pick up a pitch magazine, and I open it up to, what do you know? This guy, who was just asking for money and being mean to me, come to find out he lives nearby, and he does this to make money, to make a little extra cash. And now I just, I lose it. I'm so furious. I'm like, you know what? Forget homeless people. I'm done with them. They deserve what they get. And so what happens? Arm gone. I've divided. Okay, next up. Next category. So September 11th happened, and uh, from Osama 
to ISIS, I keep seeing a lot of people who are wearing turbans on their heads uh, committing very violent acts that are scary. And you know, I've been told that it's just a small sect, just a small extremist sect, but every time I see another beheading or another violent act happen, it's becoming really tough for me to believe that. And you know what? I've gotten to the point now where I have a whole series of derogatory names that I have for these people. And you know what? I've seen so much of this that I'm just going to write off the whole religion. Forget them. They need to be gone. Arm gone. So the nightly news. The nightly news. I, uh, I've watched it a lot. I see a lot of mug shots of a lot of young black men. And what you know, oh, I'm on Troost. Cruising down Troost. Man, there are a lot of these people here. I don't know if they're up to no good. It's either they're up to no good or they're waiting for the bus. I don't know what it is, but I just want this light to turn green quick. Very quick. And I'm going to pray that every light from this point on while I'm on Troost remains green. Because I just want to get out of here and into a neighborhood that I feel safe in. Leg gone. It's going to be tough. Can I keep balance? I don't know. I'm just going to hop around a little bit. So, I was driving down Independence Avenue, and I saw a woman who wasn't wearing too much, and uh, she was definitely trying to flag me down, you know, just trying to flag me down, and I don't know for why, she just wanted my attention for some reason, and uh, you know, that woman, she actually looked kind of familiar to me. You know what? A couple days ago, I'm pretty sure that I saw her back behind our house, and you know my children saw a guy get into the car and uh, turn a trick. And wow, I, didn't, I never thought that I would have to explain this kind of a thing to my six and eight-year-old, you know? And you know what? How, how dare she do that? How dare she rob my children of their innocence, you know? Like, who does she think she is? You know what? All these women out here, they're nothing but eyesores, and they need to go. I'm going to report them every time I see them. Leg gone. So you see what happened? This is what stereotypes did. This is what hate did. This is what fear did. I'm now a torso preaching to you. <laughs> I like the word torso. It's a good word. But that's what happens, right? We become a body, a body of believers who are isolated, divided, and living in fear. And because of that, we aren't able to function at all. And the, I think that the only way forward, the only way for us to learn to love again is to reach across the aisle, to reach across economic divides, to reach across continents and cultures, and bring people close. We've got to let people in. We've got to forgive even when it hurts, even when it's difficult. We need to seek first to understand someone else's perspective before offering our own. We need to not assume the worst from somebody whenever we encounter them. But how can we make this difficult move from fear to love? So I'd like to close today with a short story. When I lived at Cherith Brook, we would take weekly peacemaking walks where we would go out on the streets and we would mingle with folks who would never in a million years find, find themselves at uh, 
the shower house is what we were called on the streets. So on Wednesday from like two to five, we'd spend like a three hour chunk out on the streets and we would just wander around, meet people. And if there was some sort of potential conflict that were to arise, we would work to try to defuse it. And that was it. And on these walks, we would regularly go to a place called the Red Mile. It's a place just off Independence Avenue, across the street from a liquor store, and it's a stretch of sidewalk uh, along a large red brick building. And there are a lot of people who hang out there, and a lot of drug deals go down there. And on this particular Wednesday afternoon, a man came out from around the corner who we had not met, and this man looked agitated, and he was high. So he came up, I started talking to him, And he started asking me questions. He thought we were cops, so I said, no, we're not cops. We come from the shower house. Have you heard of it? No? Okay, let me explain this to you. Here's what the shower house does. And so, and then I I began to share with him about faith and that we're not here to do anything. We're just to make sure folks are doing all right, feeling safe, feeling loved, and we want to help. That's it. And as I kept talking and as he kept asking questions, I noticed that his hand was in his pocket. And so did the other two people at Cherith Brook. His hand was in his pocket the entire time. And another strange thing happened that as he kept getting more and more agitated, as more and more questions were being asked, uh, we noticed that all of our friends who were hanging out that we were talking to began to disappear around the sides of the building. So that at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday, the scene had been set for a crime to take place and no one be a witness to it. So it's now me, two other Cherithbrook folks, and this guy. And he asked me a very strange question at this point. He asked me, are you willing to die for your faith? And immediately I'm like, oh no, really? This is like cheese ball Sunday school stuff, right? <laughs> it's like, it's that hypothetical that like the Sunday school teacher really wants the kids to answer right on because they're like, boom, he said yes. He's going to last a lifetime with his faith. You know, it's like, that's what I'm thinking. But uh, <clears throat> he asked this and in my head, I'm like, well, you know, I haven't met Sarah yet. I'd like to meet her still and get married. And it'd be great to start a family here at some point and these things would be great to do. And so, yeah, I am willing, but can we wait a little? Can we just postpone it? That'd be great if we could. And uh, so what comes out of my mouth was, yes. (laughs) And then what does he do? He takes his hand out of his pocket and he shows me a knife. And at this point, I'm like, oh no, this is going to suck. I might get stabbed. (laughs) You know, I'm freaking out. But what happens next, uh, I was very excited about. He threw the knife behind him, and I breathed a huge sigh of relief, and I thanked him over and over again for being nonviolent in that situation. (laughs) And then we proceeded to have a good conversation, as good of a conversation as you can have with someone who is high and has just pulled a knife out on you. So we had a good conversation. Needless to say, after this happened, every Wednesday I did not want to go out on the streets. After that, I dreaded it, and every time we got out to uh, the Red Mile, I was freaking out. I felt my heart beat just as fast as it did the day that that happened. And at the same time uh, that we were doing all this at Cherith Brook, I would also attend a series of uh, services called Tizay services. These are services that last about an hour. It's filled with a lot of silence and a centering prayer. And sprinkled throughout are these beautiful little songs that are also meant to be meditations. Why? Because they're only four lines long. You sing them over and over and over again, and they become like a little prayer. And on one Wednesday, I wasn't even meaning to do this, but one Wednesday, I found myself humming a song to myself. I'm like, whoa, what is this? What am I doing? And I was like, oh yeah, it's this song that I learned from a Tizay service. I found myself singing, in the Lord I'll be ever thankful. In the Lord I will rejoice. Look to God. Do not be afraid. 
Lift up your voices, the Lord is near. Lift up your voices, the Lord is near. And something happened when I sang that song over and over myself. I felt my nerves calm. I felt my heartbeat slow down. And I, I actually had a good day that Wednesday out on the streets. And so I thought, man, there's something to this, you know? And so I start doing it before we go out every Wednesday. And as we get close to the Red Mile, I would just sing it over and over. In the Lord, I'll be ever thankful. And you know what? After two months, I didn't have to sing the song anymore. My fear disappeared, completely went away. I was able to go to that street corner, no problem. I was able to see the guy who two months earlier had pulled a knife out on me and not think anything of it. And I share this story because that song helped me overcome my fear, which made me think, why in the world was that? How did that song do that? That violent image and that situation was nullified by a song. It was nullified by liturgy. And we're surrounded by liturgy, right? Have you ever done the Pledge of Allegiance? Yeah, that's liturgy. We know that a lot of the same pop songs, that's liturgy. We're celebrating the Oscars tonight. We've watched all those movies, yeah? That's liturgy. If you've gone through the public school system, you've been told a story about our origin, about our country, and that is liturgy. And these things all orient us in one way or another, either towards fear or towards love. And guys, I think it is time for us to switch our liturgy. It is time for us to trade in bickering, bigotry, and bloodshed for love, harmony, and peace. And the good news is that it can begin with a name shared, a handshake offered, a hug given, or a song sung. And you know what? I'd I'd love to offer a challenge to us. As we leave here and go about our days, in in the coming days, weeks, months, I would love for us to do one thing that would try to move us from fear to love. One thing. It might mean that we, we, it might, mean that we might need to get rid of something that, that we've been consuming. It might mean that we need to add something. Any of these things are great. Just do one thing. Maybe if, if we are addicted to 24-hour news and we find that it does nothing but increase our fear exponentially, maybe it means we should probably turn it off because it's tough for us to ignore it. And then we end up being oriented by fear. If we listen to talk radio and it does nothing but fill us with hate, and reinforce stereotypes that are probably unhelpful, then maybe it means we turn it off. If we're watching a movie that's filled with violence, hate, and revenge, maybe it means we watch a different movie, like Selma. (laughs) You know, that's my plug. Maybe it means when we go out on the plaza, instead of passing by the panhandler, we stop and be like, hey man, what's your name? Yeah, I'm Nick, good to meet you. You doing okay? You getting enough money out here? I don't have anything to give you, but I just want to hear how you're doing. Are you doing, are you doing all right? Where are you staying? You staying close by? Dude, it's going to be really cold tonight. Do you, got, you have what you need? You know what? I'll be right back. I'm going to get you a blanket. Just do one thing. One thing. Start there. One thing that'll break down our stereotypes. One thing that'll bring reconciliation. Just one thing. Start there. Small steps. And thankfully... We have the example of Christ and one another, our one body with many parts to help us move from fear to love, from violence to peace.
Amen.